Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Aptalis Pharma, Inc., Gilead Sciences, Inc., and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Today's program is a companion piece to our E-Cystic Fibrosis Review newsletter issue, Strategies for the Improvement of Nutrition Outcomes. Our guest today is that issue's author, Amanda Radner Leonard, from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This activity has been developed for pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies and expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website newsletter archive www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org and click on the Volume 4, Issue 4 podcast link. Learning objectives for this audio program are that after participating in this activity, the participant will demonstrate the ability to describe approaches to the treatment of low vitamin D levels in patients with cystic fibrosis, discuss the variability of fecal elastase results during the first year of life, and summarize the importance of tailoring nutritional interventions to specific patient and family situations. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. On the phone, we have with us Amanda Radmer-Leonard, a pediatric nutrition practitioner at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Center and the Johns Hopkins Children's Center, both part of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Ms. Leonard discloses that she has served as a consultant for Abbott Pharmaceuticals and has indicated that there will be no reference to unlabeled or unapproved uses of drugs or products in her discussion today. Amanda Leonard, welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. Thank you, Bob. I'm really excited to be here with you today. In your newsletter issue, you reviewed recent research describing new approaches to increasing the survival of patients with cystic fibrosis, as well as ways to improve their quality of life through better health and decreased comorbid complications. What I'd like to do today is discuss how some of that research can be applied in clinical practice. So if you would, uh, start us out with a patient description, please. For our first case, we have a five-month-old male. He was diagnosed with CF by newborn screening shortly after birth. His medications include CF-specific multivitamin, one milliliter per day, and mom adds salt, an eighth of a teaspoon of salt per day, to his feeds. The pediatrician put him on a 24-calorie per ounce infant formula, and he takes about 27 ounces per day. He's fed PO ad lib. Relevant lab data includes a fecal elastase at one month of 252 micrograms per gram, which is consistent with pancreatic sufficiency. Mom reports that he has three to four stools per day with no grease or oil noted. As far as his anthropometrics, his weight is 8.2 kilos, which is at the 29th percentile weight for age. His length is 52 centimeters, which is the 21st percentile length for age. And his weight for length is at the 56th percentile. First off, Let me ask you about genetic testing. Did you have the mutations for this baby? Yes, Bob, we were able to get mutations for this baby. The mutations came back as F508-DEL, which is a pancreatic insufficient mutation, and R347-P, which is variable. That means that you don't know if the baby's going to be insufficient or sufficient. How does this information impact the treatment plan? At this time, it's not really going to impact our treatment plan, but it will impact what we do in the future. When you have a pancreatic-sufficient mutation, that can be dominant. But since the R347P is variable, we don't know where the baby's going to end up. It could go either way, so it'll be really important to monitor labs and clinical data. In your patient description, you noted that the fecal elastase was consistent with pancreatic sufficiency at one month of age. 
Should the clinician then assume that this baby will always be pancreatic sufficient? No, Bob, that's not necessarily the case. With a variable mutation, it's possible for a baby to convert from being pancreatic sufficient to becoming pancreatic insufficient. It's really important to monitor the growth of the baby and the stools for signs and symptoms of malabsorption, and also think about some lab data as well. So regarding the lab data, when would you recheck fecal elastase? I would think about checking fecal elastase again at about one year of age or maybe sooner if there are any signs of pancreatic insufficiency, such as increase in the number of stools, noticing grease or oil in the diaper, or if the baby seems to be having problems growing. At this point, the weight for length is good at 56%, so the baby seems to be doing fine. But if his weight for length seemed to drop off or mom noticed he was having other GI issues, we would definitely want to recheck it sooner. The work of O'Sullivan and colleagues discussed in the newsletter issue really showed us that the fecal elastase can change over the first year of life. So if you just look at one data set, you're really not getting the full picture. And they recommend for any baby whose initial value is greater than 50 micrograms per gram that you do recheck it at one year because the babies can become pancreatic insufficient over time. And there was even one infant in their study who went from pancreatic insufficient fecal elastase levels to pancreatic sufficient at the one-year check. Now, pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy. Or would you recommend starting PERT in this baby? I wouldn't recommend starting PERT at this time since the clinical evidence points to the fact that the baby is pancreatic sufficient. So we really don't want to just empirically start enzymes unless they're really indicated by the stool history and the lab data. So the baby's growing well now, and there's some chance that he may end up being pancreatic sufficient. We really don't know for sure. With the variable mutations, it's really hard to tell early on what the pancreatic status is going to be later on in life. And although many babies present with pancreatic insufficiency early on, there are some people that don't develop their insufficiency until later in life. So close clinical management and monitoring is really the best choice for this child. So I think it's really important when you're assessing pancreatic status in a baby or in children that you look not just at one data point or one lab value or just the clinical picture, that you can look at it all together. You can take the labs, the genetics, and how the baby's doing clinically and assess what your next step should be. Uh, thank you for that case and discussion, Amanda. Let me ask you now, if you would please, to bring us another patient. For our next patient, we have a 15-year-old female who is diagnosed with CF at four months of age. She's an active teenager whose weight is 50.5 kilos, which is the 42nd percentile weight for age. Her height is 160 centimeters, which is the 38th percentile height for age, and her BMI is at the 46th percentile. Her pulmonary function is pretty good with an FEV1 at 89% predicted. Medications include CF-specific vitamin, a soft gel, one twice a day, enzyme replacement therapy, and the dose is about 2,100 units of lipase per kilo per meal, and she follows a high-calorie diet with two to three snacks at home. Um, relevant lab data includes a 25-hydroxyvitamin D of 20 nanograms per milliliter measured at her last clinic visit. Just to confirm, that vitamin D level that was found in her lab data, that's low, is that correct? Yes, Bob. Her vitamin D level of 20 nanograms per milliliter is low. The CF Foundation recommends a goal of at least 30 nanograms per milliliter in individuals with cystic fibrosis. So that low vitamin D level, what would you do to address it? 
Well, there's a few things that I would look at. One of the first things I would want to do is to make sure that she's actually taking her CF-specific vitamins. A busy teenager, sometimes you can forget to take doses, so we wouldn't want to add another medication if she's not already taking the initial amount that we think she is. And another way to make sure if she is indeed taking her vitamins, that they're absorbed a little bit better, is to take them at a meal when she's taking enzymes. Since vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, it is absorbed better if taken with PERT at a mealtime. If she's taking her enzymes twice a day and she's taking them with a meal when she's taking her enzymes and her levels are still low, I would consider adding cholecalciferol or vitamin D3, 2,000 international units, twice a day. Now, we know that medication adherence is a problem for all patients and even more so for teenagers. They're busy, they forget, they don't want to, they don't feel it's important. What specifically would you do to address better adherence in this 15-year-old girl? In teenage patients, one of the things that I find most helpful is to find out what their schedule is and what their goals are. If they don't feel the medication is helping them, then they may not put it at the top of their list if they only have time to do a certain number of things. So I really want to make sure that the teens understand why the vitamins are important. Vitamin D is important for bone health. And also we saw in Grossman's work that was referred to in the newsletter commentary that it's also linked to inflammation and potentially is helpful in improving relevant clinical outcomes. Once you can sort of get the teen to buy into the idea that vitamins are important, you can troubleshoot with them ways to help them remember. You can see if there's a certain time of day that they can say, I'll have it with breakfast and dinner. Maybe they can get a pill case that they can leave out so that they see it. Sometimes we'll have teens set reminders on their cell phones since everyone seems to be very connected these days. That's a good little reminder to say, oh yeah, it's time for me to take my vitamins. Sometimes in our clinic, we are able to consult with behavioral psychology to really help the teens figure out ways to improve their adherence and also to help them realize how important these issues are. I'd like you to address a specific point that there might be some confusion about, and that's when should vitamin D levels be drawn? Does it matter? Actually, it does, Bob. The time of year can impact the results of your vitamin D level. The CF Foundation recommends checking levels at the end of winter when your vitamin D stores are likely to be at their lowest. Since vitamin D can be made by the body in sunlight, then the summertime and the fall, your levels tend to be higher. We want to make sure that we're really capturing sort of the lowest point. And that being said, getting everybody's levels drawn at the end of winter is really not always feasible, especially in a busy clinic setting. So you really need to make sure that you include some clinical judgments along with your lab data when you're making recommendations. So with this patient we've been discussing, when would you recheck her levels? I would check it in the next clinic visit, Bob, probably in the next two to three months. It's really important to keep track and we don't want to lose sight of a low level and want to make sure that our treatment actually had the desired effect. What would you do if her levels were still low at her next clinic visit? If her levels continue to be low at the next clinic visit, I would recommend an additional 2,000 international units of cholecalciferol or vitamin D3 every day. And again, I would want to make sure that she was taking the extra cholecalciferol that I had recommended at the first low level and that she was still taking her CF-specific vitamins. So summarize for us, if you would, about assessing vitamin D levels. I think it's really important to make sure that when you're assessing vitamin levels, especially in teenagers, that you're checking for adherence and that you're not just throwing more medications at someone so that you want to make sure that the teens can fit the treatment into their life and that they're really taking what you think they're taking so that when you give them more medicine, it really proves to be helpful. I think that keeping vitamin levels up can be very tricky. And we'll return with Amanda Radmer-Leonard in just a moment. 
Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of eCystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of eCystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews a current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a thousand of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up-to-date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. Welcome back to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guest is Amanda Radmer-Leonard, a pediatric nutrition practitioner at the Johns Hopkins Children's Center and the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Center, and our topic is Strategies for the Improvement of Nutrition Outcomes. We've been looking at how some of the new information Ms. Leonard described in her newsletter issue can be applied in clinical practice. So if you would, Amanda, please present us with another case. Sure, Bob. Our last patient is a three-year-old female who was diagnosed with CF at birth. Past medical history is remarkable for a meconium ileus with resection. Anthropometrics include weight of 14 kilos, which is the 42nd percentile for weight for age, a height of 97 centimeters, which is the 62nd percentile of height for age, and a BMI at the 26th percentile. Medications include CF-specific vitamins, one chewable per day, 2,000 international units of cholecalciferol, and an enzyme dose that's about 2,400 international units of lipase per kilo per meal. Mom reports that the stool history is unremarkable with one to two formed stools per day and rare belly aches, and the diet history includes a high-calorie diet with two to three snacks. This little girl also drinks two cans of a high-calorie supplement per day. The family has been struggling with trying to get her to gain weight, and they've tried appetite stimulants with limited success. The family discontinued this therapy. When weight is discussed in clinic, mom reports that their whole family is thin, when they're young and that she will catch up eventually, and also reports that she eats all of the time. From what you just described, it sounds like the family doesn't really realize the importance of nutrition issues. How would you approach them about that? I think that's a really interesting point, Bob. It's really important for the family to know that nutrition really does play an important role in cystic fibrosis. And we learned from this study by Yen and colleagues that was reviewed in the newsletter issue that 
early nutrition really has an impact on later clinical outcomes. So helping to share that information with the family is really important. Also, sometimes I've showed the CO Foundation graph that shows the relationship or the association between body mass index and pulmonary function to help the family know that nutrition can help make your lungs better. I think that also telling the family that the goal that the CL Foundation suggests is a BMI at or above the 50th percentile, and we really have found that in patients who can achieve this, there's some association with having better lung function as well. Having the entire team involved, not just the dietitian, is also really helpful. If the dietitian is going in and saying one thing and then the family is not hearing it reflected by the other team members, by the physician or the nurse, or even in our clinic, sometimes the physical therapist or respiratory therapist will help sort of push the good nutrition is important message so that the family knows that we're all on the same page. This three-year-old girl you described, how would you evaluate her? Well, Bob, there's a few things that I would want to look at. I would look at their intake and mealtime behaviors, make sure that the diet is really high fat and high calorie as the mom is reporting. I would also want to make sure that she's drinking the high calorie supplement every day because that really will be providing her with additional calories. I also want to make sure that her enzyme dose is okay. So assessing the intake is checking the calories that are in and checking the enzyme dose can help us with the potential losses if she's malabsorbing. From the stool history and her enzyme dose at 2,400 units of lipase per kilo per meal, it seems to be that it's in a pretty good range. And another thing that I would think about would be appetite stimulants, but in this family, those have already been trialed and the family did not feel they were helpful. So I think that suggesting those again would not be something that I would do. What other things would you consider here? Well, Bob, if the girl really is drinking her high-calorie supplement and is eating three meals and two or three snacks a day and is really maximizing what she is able to take in, I might consider a referral to a gastroenterologist because if she's absorbing and is taking in high calories but still can't eat enough to keep up with her energy needs, something like a gastrostomy might help her to grow. We use gastrostomy feeds in kids with CF really sort of as an additive, not as a replacement for food. We want them to eat a high-calorie diet during the day, but they just need that extra boost at night, and it really does help improve their growth. There really weren't any other symptoms that pointed to malabsorption or other GI issues, but a referral to a gastroenterologist will allow for those issues to be ruled out before we would proceed with the placement of a gastrostomy tube. If the GI findings supported and the family does choose to go with a gastrostomy, how and when would this patient be fed? What we usually do, Bob, is to give about 50% of the estimated calorie needs overnight via the tube. And we adjust it based on the patient's growth and the family's schedule and preferences. The idea really is that she would eat during the day as much as she wanted, and then at night we would give her more. A lot of families say that this decreases some stress in terms of the parents encouraging the children to eat, or maybe the children would call it nagging, saying, come on, eat some more, eat some more, when the parents know that they're going to be getting a substantial amount of calories overnight. And one of the nice things about overnight feeds is that they can be adjusted based on the family's schedule so that if she's going to bed later or they have some sort of an activity, they can start the feeds later or earlier depending on what they need. And it's really important for the healthcare provider or the dietitian to work with the family to make sure that you're fitting this therapy into their schedule. In this patient, or more actually in any patient with a gastrostomy, what's the best way to ensure they get their enzymes? 
Well, Bob, this is not an easy question to answer. Ideally, we would give enzymes all throughout the feeding every few hours because they're only active for a few hours, but that would not be very helpful in terms of allowing the patient to sleep or the parents. So what we do at our center is to give a meal dose of enzymes at the beginning and the end of feeds. There are some other approaches that other centers use, and this is what we've chosen to do at our center, and we've had good success. I think that when you're working with a family and talking about getting a gastrostomy, it's really important to make sure that you have the family involved in the process and that they believe this is going to help their child and also that you tailor the feeds to meet their schedule and their needs. Thank you, Amanda, for those case presentations and discussions. Let me change direction now and ask you to look into the future for us. Advances in understanding and improving cystic fibrosis nutrition. What's on the horizon? Well, I think that the field of CF nutrition is really emerging lately, and I think that there's a lot of exciting things on the horizon. I would see as we move forward that CF nutrition will be more tailored to promoting health and not preventing deficiencies. I think once we get a better handle on managing some of the vitamin and mineral deficiencies, we'll find that maybe giving different doses or different kinds of foods will actually improve their health. And I think also that we're going to be moving more towards a tailored nutrition approach in that we might be able to get genes or modifier genes and know from the genetics what sorts of foods or what sorts of therapies are going to be helpful for these patients. Thank you, Amanda. Let's wrap things up by reviewing what we've talked about today in light of our learning objectives. So, approaches to the treatment of low vitamin D levels in patients with cystic fibrosis? I think that recognizing the importance of vitamin D is something that you really should do in clinical practice and that continued monitoring will help keep your patients healthy. And also, if you notice a low vitamin D level, knowing what medicines your patients are already taking, and if they're not taking the vitamins that you think they are, you want to make sure that you address that rather than just throwing more medications on top of something that maybe they already find to be overwhelming. And the variability of fecal elastase results during the first year of life. I think it's really important to know that just getting one fecal elastase value during the first year of life is not a good picture of that patient's pancreatic status going forward. So getting an initial reading and then another reading at a year, certainly if the initial reading was greater than 50 micrograms per gram, is really important. And finally, the importance of tailoring nutritional interventions to the patient and family situation. Practicing patient and family-centered care when you're looking at the nutritional approach for a family is very important because you want to make sure that you're not recommending or prescribing things that are not going to work for their particular situation. So I think taking the whole picture into account and really making sure that they have a voice in the planning is very important. Amanda Radmer-Leonard from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, thank you for participating in this eCystic Fibrosis Review podcast. Thanks, Bob. I really enjoyed it. This podcast is presented in conjunction with eCystic Fibrosis Review, a peer-reviewed CME and CNE-accredited literature review emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education to physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this educational activity for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should only claim credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. 
For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information of specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Thank you for listening. Eastistic Fibrosis Review is supported by an educational grant from Aptalis Pharma, Inc., Gilead Sciences, Inc., and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyrighted with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.